Well, while the kids are making their way out, you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're just going to begin this morning by reading our text, Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Our Savior Jesus is the perfect and glorious minister of the gospel. And in back-to-back accounts, we see two of his major activities in the ministry. In Matthew four seventeen, we see the beginning of his preaching ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his preaching ministry. And now, beginning in verse 18, we see the beginning of his leadership development ministry. The very key to multiplying the efforts of a minister of the gospel. Other than healing and doing miracles to prove his identity and his power, the two primary tasks that Jesus undertook in the ministry was to preach the word and to train men. That was his ministry. He even said in the Gospel of Mark that that is what I came to do. And now we have seen from Matthew 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 17, the the king has come, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he's here. And now the process of filling the halls of heaven with citizens of the future kingdom, that process has now begun. And Jesus is not just going to make disciples, he's making disciple makers. Now we're going to use the term disciple a lot this morning, and so just a, a little reminder about the term disciples. It's used over 200 times in the New Testament. It's generally a word that simply means a learner, somebody who learns. But we need to distinguish there's three different types of uses of the word disciple in the New Testament. The first one is the most specific. It's the technical term for the title given to the 12 men Jesus chose to train and follow him. It gets a little bit broader. The second way the term is used is for anyone who's placed their faith in Christ for salvation as a disciple. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple of Christ. But there's a a broader term, the, the broadest of all. It's just a general term used in the Gospels for anyone who was even temporarily interested in Jesus. Even those who would eventually prove unfaithful. For example, John 6, verse 66 says that as a result of Jesus' teaching, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So I just wanted to remind you about those three different usages. In our case this morning, our use of the word disciple is specific. It is the technical term to the 12 men Jesus chose to train, those whom he commanded to follow him. And toward that end, this passage records two parallel accounts Kind of almost the same story back to back of Jesus calling the first four. In the first account, Jesus calls the brothers Peter and Andrew. In the second account, Jesus calls the brothers James and John. All four are fishermen. 
Both sets of brothers are called by Jesus in the midst of their work as fishermen. And in fact, both these little tiny stories, both these narratives follow identical outlines. The basic storyline happens twice in the same order. And so that's what I'd like to start this morning is just show you the basic storyline. And we'll do this in four parts and they're repeated. And so we'll, we'll divide this up and just walk through the story. It's, it's a wonderful story. Really the beginning of the discipleship of Jesus' ministry. The first part of the storyline is the appearing of Jesus. The appearing of Jesus. Now as Jesus, verse 18, was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. All throughout Matthew so far, we have been overwhelmed time and time and time again by proofs that the king of all the kings has arrived, that Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He is the prophet that was to come. And this story now, what this does, it begins to impress upon the reader, that's us, the great and tremendous authority of this king. The story of calling four disciples. There's a, there's a royal bearing to Christ. There's a, a regal presence with which he commands and speaks to men. Now, Jesus didn't just randomly see Simon, Peter, and Andrew. This is a divine appointment in which Jesus has purposefully come to where they are. Now, of course, we know Simon more easily by the nickname Jesus gave him, Peter, the rock. In Matthew's gospel, the the name Simon is used much less often than Peter. It's appropriate that Peter is listed first. He is uh, the first to respond to Jesus' call since he appears prominently all throughout Matthew and he will end up, in fact, as the leader among equals among all the disciples. And so that's the appearing of Jesus. The second part of the storyline we could call the work of the disciples. The work of the disciples. Verse 18 makes certain we as the readers know that Peter and Andrew were fishermen making their living fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Now just a little bit of geographical note here. It's important to know these things. Sea of Galilee is a major geographical reference in all of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it has several different names, some of which were still known in New Testament times, such as Lake Gennesaret. The Jordan River flows into the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and it continues down through from the southern portion all the way to the Dead Sea. The sea of Galilee is huge. It's big. About 64 square miles. It's essentially the size of Washington, D.C. A typical fishing boat held several men, but there were larger ones that could hold even a dozen or so men for longer fishing expeditions. The fish were caught. They were brought immediately to market that day in towns and even in larger cities on the coast, such as Capernaum. It could be a very profitable business, even employing many employees serving one successful fishing business. Even today, the Sea of Galilee, their major industry is still fishing. That is how they make their money at the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is mentioned 197 times in the Bible, in the Gospels alone, 53 times. So this is a major uh, point in Scripture, in the Gospels. It's the scene of many important events in the Gospels. We have Jesus sending demons into a herd of swine in Matthew 8. We have Jesus preaching from a boat on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 13. Jesus teaching by the shore of the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 4. He calmed the sea in Matthew 4. He walked on the Sea of Galilee in 
In Mark 6, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. In Mark 5, he fed 5,000 people miraculously at the coast of the Sea of Galilee. The miraculous catch of fish and the recommissioning of Peter in John 21 happens there. The healing of a demoniac, Mark 1. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law, Matthew 8. The healing of a paralytic, Matthew 9. The healing of a centurion servant, Matthew 8. Sea of Galilee is a major, major part of the ministry of Jesus. But Peter and Andrew didn't have any idea of the coming importance of the very sea that they were using to make a living for them. It was just the task of casting the net into the sea to make that day's wages. The nets that they used were varied in size and shape. They could be cast straight from the shore if you didn't have a boat or more efficiently from a boat. But all the nets had something in common and I I tell you this for a reason I'll explain in a moment. What they had in common is that they were round or oblong either way and they were different sizes but they were weighted with stones around the edges. Basically what you did was you dropped a net into the water and then you you closed it up. The stones sank and you closed it up. There was even one type of net where a, a diver would leave the boat, dive under the net and pull one side together and then they would catch the fish that way. It was hard work. It was manly work. It was dangerous work. So just to be clear, Peter and Andrew aren't a couple of lazy fishermen just kind of throwing the line into the water while they just sat there doing nothing. There was exertion, there was effort involved. Now, why is this an important note? Matthew's note that they're fishermen casting a net into the sea prepares the reader for the play on words that Jesus makes in verse 19, doesn't it? Here's the third part of the storyline. The call of the disciples. The call of the disciples. And here's the play on words in verse 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We've been told that Peter and Andrew are casting their nets into the sea as fishermen. Jesus calls them to follow him with the intent of now fishing for men. No explanation necessary. It's its own commentary. It's totally understandable. The word picture explains exactly their purpose. To catch men to be kingdom citizens. The kingdom of Christ on earth. This is kingly authority. This is authoritative bearing. What authority he commanded. In one sentence, Jesus commanded Peter and Andrew to drop everything they had and to follow him. And he gave them their entire new purpose in life. I will make you fishers of men. Peter and Andrew were going to be instrumental in bringing kingdom citizens to faith in Christ and populating the earth with believers in the king. Matthew's portrayal of this event is designed specifically to highlight just how regal, how royal, how authoritative Jesus is, even as he interacts with his very first followers. He has the bearing of a king. He has the authority of a king. And by the way, just a little side note here. I want you to notice that Jesus is already guaranteeing the salvation of many. The clear implication of Peter and Andrew being made fishers of men is that they're also going to be what? Catchers of men. That they will not fish in vain. We have the seeds here of the New Testament's teaching on the doctrine of election. That there will be those who are saved. And they've already been chosen out according to John chapter 17. Here's a fourth part of the storyline, the obedience of the disciples. The obedience of the disciples. Verse 20, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
That's the only way you respond to the king is immediately. You don't say, let me think about it. You don't say, let me do this or let me do that. The king speaks and there is instant obedience. They left their nets. They left their livelihoods. The emphasis here is on leaving everything behind. Now, Matthew's short summary of this call of the first disciples is repeated. And so once again, the first part of the storyline, we have the appearing of Jesus. Verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They're also commercial fishermen. Jesus comes upon them as they're mending their nets, getting ready for another fishing expedition. And once again, we get to the second part of the storyline, the work of the disciples. They're mending their nets, and it's only now that we begin to get a a sense of the close family ties that are involved here. They weren't just fishermen. They were fishermen in their father's business. And listen, you don't just walk away from that easily, even in modern times. And in the ancient Near East, you never did that. You never walked away from your father's business. It just wasn't done. It was unheard of. And once again, the third part of the storyline, the call of the disciples. The end of verse 21 says simply, and he called them. Now, it's very likely that he gave the same call to James and John that he did to Peter and Andrew. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They wouldn't necessarily understand the full implications of what it meant to be fishers of men. But Matthew's gospel provides that commentary, provides understanding on that that fuller meaning Listen to the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. It's not necessary to turn there. He says in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous And we'll throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so fishing for people, fishing for men, has eternal implications of final judgment. This is a big deal. This is not a recruitment effort. This is not just come join the church. This is your eternity depends on how you respond to the message of the gospel. And once again, the fourth part of the storyline, the obedience of the disciples. The obedience of the disciples, verse 22, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Immediate sacrificial obedience, walking away from their families, walking away from their homes, walking away from their businesses, now to be homeless, to be on the road, as it were. In fact, we could make a contrast. We could contrast their obedience to the lack of obedience to the excuses from others who talked a good talk, but when it finally came to actually follow Christ, they wouldn't do it. Matthew 8, beginning in verse 19, a scribe came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does he mean? Those who are following me right now, these other guys, they're homeless. They've left everything. Are you willing to do that? In the case of James and John, they're also leaving their father and the family business. The the fishing business of Zebedee was well known, even south in Jerusalem. It was a big business known even to high officials. 
You know, if you did a little perusal of Matthew's gospel, you would find very frequently following Jesus creates tension in the family. It just does. Matthew 8, 21, tension with your father. Matthew 10, 21, tension with your brother. Tension with children who don't believe. Matthew 10, 34, tension between daughter and mother, daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. In Matthew 10, 36, Jesus said, a man's enemies will be the members of his household. What does he mean by enemies? He doesn't mean people who hate each other. He means that you are now following Christ and your family member, even your wife or your husband or your children or your father or your mother or your brother or your sister, they're following their father, the devil. And you are ultimately at odds with one another. The Gospel of Matthew points this out time and time again. And just how immediately did James and John follow Jesus? Mark 1, verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. No two weeks notice. No, well, let's work our way into this. They left their father on the boat and they went away to follow him. So it's a very simple story. It's a wonderful beginning to the ministry. But I'd like to go back to Peter and Andrew for a little while. Because this is intriguing. There they are. They're fishing. Jesus comes and says, follow me, and off they go. And my question is, why would they do that? You might be wondering why Peter and Andrew would respond so readily to the call of Jesus. Well, let me give you the reason up front, and then let's work through it. The reason they might respond so readily is that Peter and Andrew were already disciples of John the Baptist. They knew that Messiah had come. They had apparently been baptized by John in repentance and in heart preparation to meet Jesus. And in fact, they had already met him. This wasn't their first time. I'd like to go to another text to show you this. Turn with me to John's Gospel in John chapter 1. Very familiar to you. John chapter 1 Verse 35, we're going to see four men who are completely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King. These four men, with some overlap here, are John the Baptist, Andrew, Simon Peter, and then an unnamed disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Andrew, Simon Peter, and an unnamed disciple of John the Baptist. And and let's just read this text and then work our way into it because I'd like to answer the question, why would they just up and follow Jesus? Verse 35, on the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. I want you to notice, first of all, the language of following here. Verse 37, they followed Jesus. Verse 38, 
He noticed them following. Verse 39, come and you will see. Verse 39, they stayed with him. Verse 40, one who followed Jesus. Verse 41, we have found the Messiah. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. So this text is clearly about following Christ. So why would Peter and Andrew drop everything to follow Christ? Jesus makes three statements And I'd like to use those to kind of give us these reasons. The first reason they would drop everything and follow Christ is that Christ is all loving. He is all loving. Verse 35 tells us that this is now the day following John the Baptist's official proclamation to the crowds. When when did that happen? The day before. Look with me at verse 29. On the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 34, and I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So yesterday, John presented Jesus, the Lamb of God, to Israel as a nation. Today, John presents the Lamb of God to a pair of individual Israelites. These were two of his disciples, meaning that he's baptized them. He's been teaching them about the Lamb of God, who is the Son of God, who is the light of the world, who is the Messiah, who is the King. Now, this scene is easy for us to picture. It doesn't take a lot of work. John is standing with two men, and here comes Jesus. Probably a bit at a distance, and as Jesus walks on by, John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. This has got to go down in history as the most effective gospel presentation in history. Behold the Lamb of God, and off they go. They follow Christ. Now this just seems almost too good to be true. John the Baptist just happens to be talking to these two men when Jesus just happens to come walking by. Well, this is where the all-loving part comes in. Jesus is God. He is all-knowing. What did he know about these two men? He knew they had been convicted in their hearts of their sin. They had already been baptized by John. He knew that they were supernaturally drawn to Christ already as Jesus would teach in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He knew that they were like sheep without a shepherd, desperate to meet their Savior. He knew that they were waiting for him. They're they're literally waiting with John the Baptist for Jesus to show up. That's why they're with him. And so Jesus said in John 17 that he did all that the Father commanded him. So what does that mean? This whole scene was choreographed in the halls of heaven and planned in heaven for the sake of these two men. Jesus walks by, right on cue. He turned and noticed them following. He said to them, what do you seek? I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't ask them whom they were seeking, but what they were seeking. Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. They didn't just want to meet with Jesus. They had spiritual needs. They had, they had unmet needs. They had heard the preaching of repentance. They had heard the preaching of the coming kingdom. And especially the coming Messiah. They heard all this from John the Baptist. And, and now they sensed, we know this by virtue of them following Christ, they sensed that he had all the answers for the spiritual needs that they had Needs for forgiveness, for restoration, for eternal life, for entrance into the kingdom of God. He asked them, what do you seek? And what deep and heartfelt answers they could have given Jesus. They could have said, we seek 
relief from the oppression of legalism and impossible man-made standards. We're, we're seeking Messiah. We're seeking eternal life. We're seeking knowledge of the kingdom of God. How do we get in? We're seeking forgiveness from our sins. We're seeking unmarred and unbroken fellowship with the God that our fathers has, have worshipped. Oh, the answers they could have given. Instead, they said, uh, where are you staying? They didn't answer Jesus' question directly. They answered the question with a question, not in a disrespectful sense at all. It's most likely they just kind of fumbled out a silly answer. You ever been with somebody important and they ask you a question and you say literally the dumbest thing you've ever said in your whole life? And you see the words coming out and your brain is going, no. And that's, that's what they did. Oh, the things, what are you seeking What could they have said? A thousand glorious things, but they said, where are you staying? But there's an innocence and a beauty to their answer, which was really a question. It's late afternoon. It's about four in the afternoon or so. It's time to start looking for a place to stay. These men are not close to home. And so they asked Jesus, where are you staying? Maybe they could spend some time with him. They wanted to be where he is. God had orchestrated and choreographed every moment of these men's lives to this point in time. A point in time where they, before they knew what was coming out of their mouths, attempted to invite themselves to spend the evening with the Messiah King predicted in the Old Testament. And because God had already chosen to open their hearts to Christ, Jesus shows up right on time. Why? Jesus always shows up right on time to those that the Father has called to him because he is all loving. In Jesus' answer to their question, we get the second reason that Peter and Andrew followed Christ. Not only is he all loving, he's all giving. He's all giving. Verse 39, he answers, he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. Now, Jesus toys with them a little. He doesn't answer their question either. He had asked, what do you seek? They answered his question with a question, where are you staying? So he answers indirectly also. He he doesn't say, oh, go down about five blocks, make a left at the well, then the right at the sheep pen, I'm staying at the house on the left, three doors down. Instead, he uses the culture of his time to make a threefold invitation. First of all, there's an invitation to come eat with Jesus. How do we get that? Well, it was right about time for the main meal of the day, a late afternoon, early evening meal as the sun would be going down soon. And so when he said, come and you will see, that's an invitation to eat. The second part of the invitation, it was an invitation to stay with Jesus, to be with him. If they were asking where he was staying, it meant they weren't close enough to home to sleep in their own houses. So not only is it an invitation to eat, It's an invitation to stay. And the third part of the invitation, it's an invitation to fellowship with Jesus. Ancient Near Eastern hospitality said that if you eat with me, if you stay with me, I am your friend, I am your companion. When Jesus asked them, what do you seek? He already knew the answer. They were seeking an audience with the Lamb of God, the Messiah who could save them from their sins. And they got infinitely more than they hoped for. He immediately invited them not just to come and see where I live, but to come and see where I, see the truth of salvation. 
because I am the one who can give you eternal life. Now, we don't know where Jesus was staying. He didn't own a home. He was staying most likely in the home of a friend or a benefactor, but we do know what would have happened. Jesus has now obligated himself, according to custom, to be the host for these men. When they arrived at the home, most likely a servant would have washed the dust off their feet or offered a basin for them to wash. Jesus would have offered them some scented oil for their heads to freshen up from the dust of the road. He would have given them a a formal welcoming kiss on the cheek, a normal act in the times of receiving an honored guest into the home. He would have treated them with honor and dignity. By now, bread would be baking. It would be filling the whole house with the, the grainy, earthy aroma we know so well. The men are cleaned up, and after they're properly and officially and formally welcomed, the sun would be setting, the lamps are being lit in the home, and in the lamplight of dusk, the bread, along with some olives and grapes and maybe even some dates or figs for a treat, they would be placed on the table. There would be a bowl of almonds or or pistachios and a bowl of delicious dipping sauce for their bread. And they would all recline at a low table and they would eat in a relaxed position and they would, they would settle in, not just to eat together, but there's nothing else to do. There is no Netflix, there's no TV, there's nothing. You just sit and you talk and you would eat together for two and three and maybe four hours depending on how interesting the conversation was. That was the evening's activity. We don't know exactly what he spoke to them, but we do know this though. Jesus imparted to them the words of life and they began to follow him as those who had found their Messiah and found salvation from sin. And now they weren't just physically following him to the house he was staying in. Now they're spiritually following him and they would do so for the rest of their lives and on into eternity. Do you see how all giving Jesus is? They asked Where are you staying? And in return, he gave them his friendship. He gave them his fellowship. He gave them the words of life. And of course, over time, they would grow to understand that the the words of life are not just about Jesus being your friend. He must be your savior. He must be your sacrifice. They already understood this to some level as John the Baptist had identified Jesus to them as the sacrificial lamb of God. But Jesus had such a giving heart toward these men. How he longed for them to enter into fellowship with him and into the kingdom of God. Can I let you in on a little secret here? These men thought they found Christ. Christ walked in right on cue. He found them. He was there at the moment God ordained a trillion years earlier. It was Christ who sought after them, led them, taught them, saved them. Why would Peter and Andrew follow Christ? He's all loving. He's all giving. There's a third reason. He's all powerful. He is all powerful. Now remember, the two men with Jesus to this point are Andrew and another unnamed disciple. It's almost certain, though, that there was a third man who had been invited to this table. Here's the third man. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Now, John goes to a lot of trouble here 
to identify specific days in this sequence of events in John chapter 1. Verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. That's the day we're in now. Verse 43, the next day. So it had to be the same evening, the same afternoon in which Andrew and the unnamed disciple are invited to the home that Jesus is staying in. It had to be the same afternoon, same evening that Andrew runs and he finds Peter and brings him as well. And when Jesus and Peter met for the first time, Jesus created an intense, a penetrating, a never-to-be-forgotten moment. Jesus didn't say, Hi, how are you? I'm Jesus. What's your name? Verse 42, He brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Jesus instantly demonstrates his power, instantly demonstrates his authority. He acts like a master over a slave, a king over a subject. And he gives Simon a nickname and tells him what everyone else is now supposed to call him, Cephas or Peter. Cephas is Aramaic, Peter is Greek for rock. In the Old Testament, God at times changed a person's name to indicate a special calling on his life. Abram is changed to Abraham. Sarai is changed to Sarah, Jacob, to Israel. Why is that important? Giving someone a new name demonstrates you have authority over them and they will do what you say. He's all-powerful. Now, why did Jesus name Simon the Rock? It's very interesting The New Testament never explains this, but it's obviously meant to have a meaning. There's a reason behind it. We have to rely on how Scripture uses the metaphor of a rock. And generally generally speaking, in the ancient Near East, a rock was a classic image of invulnerable uh, solidity, of strength. And Scripture bears this out as well. The rock is associated with foundations and fortresses and strongholds. But the metaphor of rock in Scripture almost always is applied to God himself. Almost every time. King David called God his rock in whom he finds shelter in 2 Samuel 22. 16 different psalms call God a rock. The rock and fortress, Psalm 18. Rock and redeemer, Psalm 19. Rock of refuge, Psalm 31. The rock upon which my feet are set after being snatched out of the miry clay, Psalm 40. The rock that is higher than I, Psalm 61, the mighty rock. Psalm 62, the rock of my salvation. Psalm 89. It's also used in the sense of being an obstacle to the evildoer. God is a rock who makes the rebellious fall. Isaiah 8, rocky soil is unable to receive the gospel. Matthew 13, the stone that the builders rejected becomes the stumbling stone. Jesus Christ. Psalm 118. Now, why do I tell you this? This is amazing. Jesus is naming Peter after a character trait of God himself. Strength of character, stability, leadership, reliability. Now listen carefully. This is where we see the all-powerful and sovereign nature of Christ. If you know anything about Peter, you would never have named him Rock. You would have named him Sponge or Mouth or something. How all-powerful is Jesus? Jesus did not name Peter after what he is. He named him for what he would be. 
when Peter met Jesus and Jesus looked at him, which is a word which means to look intently right into someone's face without breaking eye contact. This wasn't just the look of one man meeting another. This was not just a greeting. This was the authoritative look of the God-man Jesus Christ speaking into the life of a man whose salvation has been secured, whose place in the kingdom has been established, and whose role in the spread of the gospel has been ordained and been appointed. When Jesus looked at Peter, he saw all of his all-powerful plans for Peter. That Peter would be the leader among leaders, the leader of the apostles, He saw the future Peter filled with the Holy Spirit proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a crowd of 3,000 in Acts 2, not in apologetic fashion at all. Jesus saw the Peter who would take the lead with John in coming to the temple and being confronted by a lame man asking for money, Peter would heal him authoritatively. Jesus saw the Peter who would use that opportunity to preach with power to the masses Jesus saw the Peter who would be arrested and brought before the very same council that condemned Jesus and brashly telling them while quoting flawlessly from Psalm 118, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus saw the Peter who would confirm that the gospel had indeed gone out to all the Gentiles Preaching truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Jesus saw the Peter who would take the gospel to various parts of the world. And Jesus saw the Peter who would prophetically warn the church of Jesus Christ that persecution is coming and would give the church the greatest instruction ever in the midst of trouble, in the midst of pain, in the midst of death, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of anguish. The greatest instruction that we now have is First Peter what Peter's answer is to the times of persecution and pain and struggle and death and suffering, be holy because God is holy. That's a rock. That's a rock. Jesus is all-powerful and was following his father's preordained plan. Why would Peter and Andrew follow Christ? He's all-loving. He's all-giving. He's all-powerful. Let me show you some manly, godly men who followed Christ for real. John the Baptist. He followed Christ to the point of forsaking all other worldly pleasures and comforts and lost his life for this. The unnamed disciple in John 1, who is this? This is none other than the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel. John never names himself in his Gospel, but this is an eyewitness account, and only John would have known that this happened at four o'clock in the afternoon. How about the man who traveled the world, having devoted himself to Christ and to the Gospel, having taken the Gospel to parts of Eastern Europe where no one had heard the name of Christ? He preached in Turkey and then in Greece. Most of those closest to him were already dead. He was the last child in his family, now devoted fully to the proclamation of the gospel. And now in Greece, he was taken captive and condemned to die. He was crucified in the shape of an X because he didn't want to deem himself worthy to die like Jesus did. Even today, that type of cross is called St. Andrew's cross. He was just following in his brother's footsteps. A few years earlier, Peter had traveled the world. Having devoted himself to Christ and the gospel, he took the gospel to Britain, to much of Western Europe. 
And for his faith in Christ, he was arrested along with his dear wife of many years. He was forced to watch his wife be tortured and crucified before he himself joined her in death, requesting to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to die as Christ has died. So when Jesus said, follow me, they did so all the way to heaven, all the way. Now, Matthew's brief account, where we started in Matthew 4, it begins to take the reader really beyond just learning the origins of the coming of the king, and now the reader, the first century Jewish Christian, originally and soon all the churches of Jesus Christ, you begin to see the challenge. You begin to see the application. Even as I read this text in Matthew 4, There's one part I can almost guarantee was the most familiar to you, and that was in verse 19. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus' call to the first disciples provides a model for the coming church. And here what we see are the seeds of the building up of Christ's kingdom over the past 20 centuries. How how has he done this? We have the basic way that Jesus has chosen to build the church. One basic idea And we see it here in seedling form. And that is, that idea is that Christ builds his church on the backs of shepherds. He builds his church on the backs of shepherds. And I want to take you one more place to show you this and then apply this as carefully as we can. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Jesus called these four men to be fishers of men. Luke 5. For them, specifically, this was a call to full-time ministry. For these men as apostles, this ministry would begin with the casting of the net of the the gospel. This call of Peter, Andrew, James, and John in Matthew 4, this was the first call to ministry that Jesus gave them, but it wasn't at this point that they fully left everything. Yes, they immediately left with Jesus, but they did continue at least part of the time in their fishing business. Uh, Many men, from my experience, called to the gospel ministry have a transitional time. It's not always instantaneous. There is a transitional period, and that was the case with these men. We know that their call wasn't complete because Luke's gospel records their second and final call to the ministry. From this point forward, they're full-time in their training, in their assisting of Jesus in his ministry. In the first call, Jesus told them that he would make them into fishers of men, But now in this second call, Jesus is going to prove just how successful they're going to be. Luke 5, 1 through 3. And now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing at the edge of the lake of Gennesaret, that is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. And the fishermen, having gotten out of them, were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the crowds from the boat. This is a later time from the first call. This is after Matthew chapter 4. But now, after teaching from the boat, Jesus' real reason for being in the boat is revealed. Verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we labored all night and caught nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. 
He explained that their work was yielding nothing, but he says, at your word, I will let down the nets. He's obedient. Jesus is his master. This is a a, a little used word. It's used only seven times in the New Testament, all of them in Luke's gospel, and it means Lord or commander. It's a term of total respect, total allegiance. The waters are empty. There's no fish here, but I will let down my, my net because you are the master and I obey you. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, who also like, were also likewise amazed. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, for from now on, from now on you will be catching men. Peter had already believed that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God, but at this display of power and authority and control over nature, Peter's overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. He doesn't belong in the presence of this great king. He's overcome by the sheer holiness of Christ, and his first instinct is to tell the God-man to leave, to get away from him. But Jesus had a purpose in this huge catch of fish to reiterate, to repeat, to reemphasize the mission of those Jesus was calling and to guarantee their success. Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. What does this tell us theologically speaking? Well, obviously, the metaphor that Jesus has set up here is that proclaiming the gospel of Christ is the fishing for men. That's the letting down of the nets. And theologically, this tells us that God is the one who causes the catch. That God is the one who fills the nets. As a minister of the gospel, I love this. Because all I do every Sunday is throw the net out there. I don't have to fill it. I never have had to fill it. But God does that. And what did the men do after this event? Verse 11, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. From here on out, the disciples are with Jesus continually. These men, like countless thousands in the 2,000 years since, were called to full-time ministry to expend their lives for the sake of the gospel. They would become preachers. They would be the, the net casters, as it were. They would become evangelists. That their, their preaching would be centered on the content of the gospel. That was, their, that was their message. They would have their lives consumed. And ultimately, their lives ended with this calling. For the vocational elder, for the shepherds of Christ's church, this isn't a passing hobby. This isn't an occasional concern. It's an all-consuming lifestyle including the development and continued growth in the qualifications of an elder as listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It's interesting to me how many times in Scripture God calls men to ministry while they're at work. Gideon, while he's threshing grain in Judges 6. Elisha, while he's plowing in 1 Kings 19. Amos, while he's tending his herds in Amos 7. Matthew in his tax collector's booth in Matthew 9. And of course, these men as they're at their fishing business. God's call demands a decisive break from so-called normal life. A decisive break from business as usual that you no longer work for men, you work for the Lord. 
sometimes people view pastors as, as they view the rest of the world and they, they'll say something like, what church do you work for? I don't work for any church. I work for the Lord. I serve at a church's pleasure and as long as they want me here, I'll stay. But I don't work for a church. I work for Christ. But the same idea of devotion, the same idea of, of being consumed should also be characteristic of the elder or the church leader who's not supported financially by the church. 1 Timothy 5 seems to recognize elders who are and elders who are not supported financially. And while the elders not supported financially often have greater constraints on time or even limited formal training, nevertheless, the passion and the devotion and the, the consuming nature of the call to ministry is to be there for all of them. What are the duties of an elder? There's four of them. And they were modeled first by the men that Jesus called. The first duty is to be a teacher. It is to be a teacher. 1 Timothy 3, 2 tells this. There's no specifics about the scope or level of teaching. One-on-one discipleship is teaching just as much as teaching a larger group. Counseling someone from the Word of God is teaching. 1 Timothy 5 delineates a few full-time elders who work hard at preaching and teaching who carry the the brunt of the load. Not all are at that level. They're called at that level. But all elders are at some level to be opening the word of God to someone in the church. So they are to be a teacher. The elder is also to be an overseer. He's to be an overseer. This is one of the terms used multiple times in the New Testament for elders. This is not the idea of having meetings and making decisions. There are almost no examples of meetings and decisions in the New Testament with elders. Instead, this is spiritual oversight of the spiritual well-being of the members of the church. The goal is not to lead the church toward efficiency or toward financial success, but toward godliness and Christ-likeness. Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's to be a teacher. He is to be an overseer. The third duty, he's to be an example. He's to be an example. 1 Peter 5.3 tells elders, be examples to the flock meaning a type or a pattern that that you should be able to go to an elder and say, tell me about your life so that I can imitate you. It means guarding their own godliness. It means being among the people at, at a deep level. Modeling only works when the elder is seen up close by those around him, when there's an intertwining with the life of the church. The elder is to be an overseer, an example, and fourthly, he is to be an advocate meaning that the elder advocates to the Lord in prayer for the people in their charge. This is to take up the mantle modeled by the apostles in Acts 6-4 who devoted themselves to prayer and the word. And I find it interesting that prayer is listed first. The elder is burdened to pray for the church, to pray for fellow leaders, to pray for specific members. The whole church ought to be doing this, but the elder is devoted to it, devoted to lifting up specific Precious sheep of God's flock. Why is this? Because the leaders of a church have no power in themselves to bring anyone to maturity in Christ. We have none. It must be the power of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God into bringing humble obedience to the people of God. And now, the church, equipped to proclaim the gospel, which faithful shepherds have woven into the hearts and minds of its members, 
to proclaim, proclaim the gospel in the home, to literally make disciples in the home, to proclaim the gospel in the world at, at various levels. We all interact with the world. That's rich, fertile territory. To switch over from seeing your job as a job to seeing your job as a, a mission, to proclaim the gospel using the church. Oh, listen, the church is infinitely stronger as a unit. A church of just 100 people can make an infinitely higher impact than 100 individuals acting alone. We are one body with many parts. And and what is the gospel call which Christ gives through the faithful shepherds training the church, training you? What is it? It's a call to immediacy. It's a call to urgency. It's a right now call to forsake all to follow Christ. When the king calls, the only response is to run to him, to hasten to him, to hurry I know many of you have relatives and friends not in Christ and you have this sense of urgency. You know, it, you, don't you understand that you're one, uh, one car accident away, you're one disease away, you're one horrible accident away from eternity. And we have that urgency and that's what we pray for and that's what we are called to. I know your hearts, you've expressed it, you long to see those unsaved ones have immediately a response to the cross, to run to Christ, because the time is now, the days grow short, the end of life is hurtling toward an eternal chasm of death and misery. And so the Lord Jesus Christ started with Peter and Andrew to make them fishers of men, but it continues with you and it continues with me. As a church body, you have no higher purpose. Can I just put it that way? There is no higher purpose. Well, I'm a husband or a wife. That's right, to be used by Jesus Christ for that higher purpose. My hope and prayer is that we would follow in the footsteps of Peter and Andrew and James and John and that we would be fishers of men and that we would be presented as having been effective for the sake of Christ. Our Father, we are humbled by the fact that the mission has never changed, that now we have a clear understanding that your purpose in calling Peter and Andrew, calling James and John, is exactly the same as ours. It is to, to save us and to make us fishers of men. And Lord, that is our prayer that as a church, as individuals in our spheres of influence, in our home, in our workplace, among our neighbors, and as a church body together corporately, Lord, that we would be those that are fishers of men. Oh, Lord, in 2023, we pray for a grand catch. We pray for full nets. We pray for many to be those that Jesus spoke of as the good fish, those that are brought into the kingdom. We pray, Lord, that you would do this all for the sake and for the glory of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.